morning, and uh, hey guys, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're new around here, we are currently in a study of the Minor Prophets, uh, which are a collection of 12 books in the Old Testament that uh, I, I have found in the American church are largely unaccessed. They're, they're not books we talk a lot about or, or study with any regularity in the American church. And so for several months now, we've been digging into these. And we're going to continue in that study today. However, uh, we're going to take a little bit of a detour and explore something that has come up as we've studied Jonah and Amos and Hosea and Micah, a, a thread that has presented itself that we're going to pull on this morning morning in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures this morning, as we normally do. Uh, Most of these are not going to be on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to grab one off our resource table over here. And if you don't have one at all, please keep it and let that be our gift to you today. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 15, it's kind of a, a change for us to be going to the New Testament this morning. We're normally in the Old. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word of the Lord. All right, so I want to begin by just kind of unpacking that text real quick. This is the Apostle Paul writing. um, And what he says, and this is where he begins, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, right? I want to reiterate what I have presented to you as the truth or the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you again about this good news. And what he says, if you'll notice, is he says, it's by this gospel, it's by this good news that you are being saved. If, if, he says, you hold firmly to it. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Notice, at least here, that Paul doesn't say you're being saved if you believe it. He's not saying you're being saved if you have faith in it, although he clearly says those things in other places. But here he uses this interesting phrase, hold firmly. He says you have to hold on to it. Uh, the, the Greek word here, and this text was originally written in Greek by Paul, uh, the Greek word here is kind of a compound word. It's the word kateko, kateko, and it's a combination of these two words, kata and echo. And, and kata just simply means to like take down, um, and, and the image could be like you're, you're taking something down off of a shelf. You've seen something and you've grabbed it and you've brought it down to you. But then the word echo means something in the Greek that you might not expect. It, it means something like to hold or possess. 
The word echo in our English language, even though it comes from the Greek, it actually comes to us from Greek mythology, right? Because in Greek mythology, there is a woodland nymph named Echo who is cursed by the wife of Zeus, and she can only repeat the last words that she's heard, like her beautiful voice is taken away from her. Um, But in the original Greek, echo means to hold or possess. And so the image here is this image of like taking something down and making it yours. Like not just holding it in your hands, but it it like becoming a part of you. Kateko, um, like it's it's something that I'm, I'm taking and I'm possessing it in such a way that it is something that comes to define me. Right? So Paul's literally saying, by this gospel you are saved if you have truly taken it and possessed it, if you have held to it as true. The language that we use often around here is that the gospel should be the orienting center of our lives. Like it is the thing that everything else should revolve around. And yet so often in American Christianity, it's, it's an add-on, it's a hobby. But, but we're saying that the true gospel is something that should radically reshape the whole of your life. And so that's something that this word kateko is giving getting at. Now, don't miss this. Look at what he says here. He says, otherwise you have believed, there's that word, you have believed in vain. So he's saying that somehow you can believe something and yet not kateko. Somehow you can believe in vain. If you've believed this, but you haven't possessed it, then it is of no good to you. So what he's describing here is is what we say often, which is that the gospel, the gospel call, is not a call to simple mental or intellectual assent. It's not a call to just subscribe to a set of propositions about Jesus. That's not what it is at its core. It, It is a call to take it down and possess it in such a way that it transforms your very being. It doesn't just change the the things you espouse or the things you claim to believe, but the things you espouse or the things you claim to believe actually change you, right? But when it becomes the orienting center of who you are. So in other words, if you've just subscribed to a set of doctrines or if you've just subscribed to um, this list of things that you're told you're supposed to believe to be true, but those things have not become the orienting center of your life, or in other words, if Jesus has not truly become your Lord and Master, then he says you've believed in vain. This is really no different than James saying something like, faith without works is dead, right? James is saying, right, if you claim something, but the evidence of your life does not support your claim, then your claim is invalid. So so it's kind of the same idea here. So this is a call, again, to make the gospel central in your life, to possess it, to own it. But what specifically is the gospel, according to Paul here? What is it? Here's what he says, picking up in the middle of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. So he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul says that the gospel that he's given to the church in Corinth is that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared to all of these people, hundreds of people, he says. Some of them were apostles, more than 500 brothers at one time. And, And here's what's so compelling about some of this. He says some of these people are still with us. Like some of these witnesses to the resurrected Christ are still around and can testify to what they saw. So that's, that's deeply compelling. But, but watch closely. He's not saying that the gospel is simply that a man died and rose and appeared. He's saying that all of these things happen, quote, for our sins, They happen for our sins. So incumbent in his message is the notion that his readers have sins, right? And that somehow Christ's death and resurrection are for those sins. The things that Jesus has done is for sin. In other words, the sins are the reason why Christ has died and risen. And and taking and possessing the truth that Christ has died and risen somehow brings salvation. It brings transformation. But now the most important part for our purposes today. Paul's not making these claims simply based on his own beliefs. Right? He's not making these claims based on some guesses that he's made or some conclusions he's just come to. No, no, no. First of all, he says, verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And and then, verse 4, he's raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So Paul's qualifying this in two ways. He's saying, look, there's a lot of people still walking around out there who saw the thing I'm talking about. But then also, this was done according to the scriptures. We can look to the word of God and we can see these things in advance. But here's the question that this has to raise for us. What scripture is he talking about here? Right? Like, what is he getting at? He's making a case for the validity of the gospel, and it's compelling that some people have seen this happen, but but what scriptures are pointing to this? Because the Bible as we know it didn't fully exist at this time. Right? Paul's probably writing... 1 Corinthians, sometime around A.D. 53, 54, somewhere right in there, um, which makes it one of the first New Testament books to be written. Um, Paul's probably written a few other letters at this point. He's probably written Galatians and Ephesians, possibly 1 and 2 Thessalonians, but, but this is one of the early books in the New Testament. Um, and, and so let's just say that Jesus was crucified somewhere around A.D. 33, Paul's writing this letter about 20 years later. 
And he's talking about how all of this stuff with Jesus has happened according to the scriptures, and yet the first gospel account of the story of Christ, the gospel of Mark, will not be written for another five to ten years at this point. So, so Paul's not looking to any of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not talking about those stories. I don't think he's talking about his other letters like Galatians or Ephesians. I don't think he knows he's writing Holy Scripture, right? So what is he talking about? Well, what he's talking about is what we think of as the Old Testament, right? He's talking about the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says the validity of the gospel is attested to by the Old Testament. But where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Like if you've read through the Old Testament, there's not any point where Jesus suddenly pops up. And yet Paul says all of this was done according to the Scriptures. So is Jesus in the Old Testament? The answer to that question is yes. But how do we find him? How do we see him? So this is our task over this week and next. In the middle of our story on the Minor Prophets, throughout this, I've been alluding to uh, instances where we see Christ, or we'll say things like, this points us to Christ, or this reveals to us something that is to come in Christ. But learning how to more clearly see Christ in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets we're studying, is critical because if we don't see Christ correctly in the Old Testament, we can totally miss the message of the prophets. We can totally misunderstand what they're getting at. So we've got Paul's take on the matter here. Like he clearly believes the Old Testament attests to the truth of the gospel. But what does Jesus have to say? What does Jesus say about himself? That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. And then next week, we're going to consider what the Old Testament has to say specifically about Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three moments in the story of Jesus where he tells us that the Old Testament is attesting to who he is. And so the first we're going to look at this morning, we won't have this on the screen, but turn with me, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 16 of Luke 4. This is early on in the story of Jesus, and so that's why we begin here. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right, so we begin here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and then he immediately goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then from there, he goes to Nazareth and enters the synagogue in Nazareth and stands up and reads these words from the prophet Isaiah. And at this time, 
Services in the synagogue were not all that different from our service this morning. Uh, there would have been singing. There would have been prayer. Uh, there would have been, the, obviously, the reading of Holy Scripture. And there probably would have been some sort of a homily or sermon as well that took place. And so uh, I don't know that we would have felt totally discombobulated had we been there at the time. But Jesus does a remarkable thing here. He stands to read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he finds what we know as Isaiah 61. There were not chapters and verses in the text at that point in time. So he literally has to kind of go through the scroll itself and find the place where this is in the text. And so he finds Isaiah 61, which is this part of Isaiah where Isaiah is seemingly saying, this is what the Lord has sent me to do as a prophet. It seems like Isaiah is saying that God, God has sent me to, you know, bring good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and so forth. But then Jesus reads this and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Like this is Jesus saying, today these words are coming true in me because I am here. This is really about me. The Lord has sent me to do these things and the spirit of the Lord is on me. So example number one here, Jesus literally begins his ministry by going to the Old Testament and saying, here's me. When the prophet said this, he was talking about me. Example two, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 12. For this example, while in the synagogue, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand but he's done this on the Sabbath, which has scandalized the scribes and the Pharisees who have all of these rules and regulations surrounding the Sabbath. What can be done, what is acceptable, what's unacceptable. And so even though Jesus has brought healing to this man, even though Jesus has changed his life, this is, uh, like this is a party foul in the eyes of the Pharisees, right? Jesus has done the wrong thing. And, and so he has to leave the synagogue and he knows that these guys are conspiring against him. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, meaning they're plotting and scheming, withdrew from there, and, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in, the name, and, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Gentiles are just non-Jews. So again, quoting the prophet Isaiah, this is from Isaiah 42, and interesting Bible trivia here. Uh, this is the longest direct quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's what we just read from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. 
And this comes in a section of Isaiah that's known as the servant songs or the suffering servant songs. And we'll talk more about these next week because it's a place in the Old Testament where it's just full of Jesus and, and all of these allusions to Jesus. But back to Matthew 12, that happens. And so he goes on teaching and healing. And then he's approached by the scribes and the Pharisees. And so skip down to verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we're familiar with Jonah because we talked about it just a few months ago. Jesus is basically saying right here that the story of Jonah, of all things, is somehow a precursor to himself. Now, Jesus is like the exact opposite of Jonah, right? If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah is disobedient to God. Jonah tries to run away from God. God has to have him like thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish to get his attention so that Jonah will finally do what the Lord's calling him to do. Like Jesus is the antithesis of all of that, right? He's not fighting the will of God. He's saying, not my will, but your will be done. But Jesus says that Jonah's time in the fish represents what is to come for himself with his death and resurrection, this three days and three nights thing. So Jesus is aligning himself with the example of Jonah, and he's also prophesying using the Old Testament to describe what is to come, right? Saying the people that Jonah went to and the people that repented even in Jonah's day are going to rise up and testify against all of you religious people now. Like all of you people who think you're, you're, you're so important and you think you've got it all together and yet you're laying burdens on people through all of your rules and regulations that they're unable to bear. Jesus has strong words for the Pharisees, but in condemning them, he is showing them the ways that the Old Testament testifies to him. And all right, final example. Example three, probably the most famous. Turn over to Luke Luke 24, this is what's known as the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, this scene takes place following the resurrection of Christ. Mary Magdalene sees him at the tomb that morning. She goes and tells the other disciples. And then later in the day, some men are traveling to a village called Emmaus that's near Jerusalem. And as they're traveling, they're talking about everything that's happened with Jesus. And so we get the sense that while these men may have not been a part of the 12 disciples, they're followers of Jesus. And as they're traveling, Christ pulls up alongside them and walks with them, but but they don't recognize him. So pick up in verse 17 of Luke 24. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? 
And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then notice verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when it says beginning with Moses, that's another way of saying going all the way back to the book of Genesis going all the way back to the beginning of the Hebrew Bible, because the first, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are traditionally believed to have been written by Moses. So beginning with Moses, going all the way back, Jesus unpacks for these guys how all of the prophets testify to him. And then immediately after this, just a few verses down, starting in verse 44, Jesus vanishes on these guys, which had to, have, had to have been strange. And then he appears to the disciples, verse 44, and then he said to them, the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. So we're getting even more specific here. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That sounds a lot like what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So don't miss that trajectory. Jesus opens the disciples' minds to understand the Scriptures. And then he says, now that you understand that, you understand that it was necessary for me to experience everything that I've experienced, to do everything that I've done, not just because I chose to or decided to, but also because all of the prophets and the law of Moses and the Psalms, all of these things have been testifying for hundreds of years about me and what I will do. And, and so here's the point. This is what Paul was saying. This is what Jesus is doing here. When we're asked to believe in the gospel, the good news of Christ, God has gone to tremendous lengths to prove to us the truthfulness of the claims we're being asked to subscribe to. 
Not just because they're good things to subscribe to, or they're moral things to subscribe to, or they might make you a better, nicer, kinder, more loving person, right? No, it's more than this. It's so that, Jesus says, so that your sins can be forgiven. And that that is the message that we're sent to declare. This message of Christ has died, Christ was buried, Christ was risen, Christ appeared, Christ has ascended, and all of these things has happened, have happened for our sins so that there can be repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation to God. This is good news. It's the best news. I'm not just throwing out some random statements or ideas about a guy who died and supposedly came back to life. Paul says, I'm saying this Jesus is the embodiment of everything that the scriptures are all about. In the same way that Jesus reads Isaiah 61 and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, there's a very real sense in which we read the Old Testament and then come to the Gospels and Jesus says, this all has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the embodiment. I am the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham and with Moses and with David. I am the new Adam. I am the new David. And I am the one who follows obediently and perfectly in all ways. He is the Messiah. And because he fulfills all that the scriptures say, we believe that there is salvation to be found in him. And I'm constantly amazed by people who have formed negative opinions about Jesus, but have not really engaged with the Bible at all. I don't know how many of you have had this experience of like maybe growing up in the church or around the church and hearing all of these things about Jesus, but then like actually reading the Bible for yourself and coming to a greater understanding of what's actually in the book. What's amazing to me is that the claim we're making with the gospel is that this is of eternal significance to everybody. And there are people who have subscribed to that claim and yet haven't really engaged the scriptures on their own. They're taking it at face value. They're taking it based on maybe what they've heard from other people who they respect. And in the same way, there are other people who are denying it completely and yet also haven't really explored it for themselves, haven't really dug into it. There's a a really fantastic uh, apologetics course called Alpha. And, And in that course the place where they begin is just with that question. Like, chances are you've arrived at some kind of a conclusion about Jesus, either yes or no, or I don't know, or none of that stuff is real. You've arrived at some kind of a conclusion about that, but it's quite possible that you really haven't devoted a whole lot of time or mental or intellectual energy to actually exploring the validity of any of it. You've just arrived at some kind of a decision based on a feeling or something you think or something negative you heard or positive that you heard at some point, but yet you haven't really explored it for yourself. And, And if this is, if there's even an offhand chance that this is of the eternal significance that we say it is, don't you like owe it to yourself to explore it a little bit more fully, to like actually read it for yourself? 
to actually dig into it for yourself. I mean, when you do this, what you will find is that the Bible is incredible. Like, it really is incredible. I'm somebody who studied literature in college, and even just on that level, even if you don't think any of it's true, just reading the Bible for itself, it is a document that is unlike anything else in our world. Like, it is the single greatest literary event in human history, even if you're a completely secular person. I mean, this is something that was written over 1,400 to 1,600 years. There are at least 40 different human authors. There are 66 distinct books in our Bible. And yet, somehow, this whole thing dovetails together in a way that does not make sense, in a way that could not have been planned, in a way that just kind of defies logic and reason. And it it truly is incredible. Somehow it tells a cohesive story and presents a clear and startling witness for everything that happens in and through Christ. And if you have any level of skepticism about Jesus, you owe it to yourself to study this book, to read it for yourself, and I promise you, you will be amazed at the things you will find. So let's stop there for today. Next week, we're going to jump into the Old Testament more in depth, and we're going to ask the question, what does the Old Testament itself say about Jesus? What are the claims that the prophets are making about the coming Messiah? What about the law of Moses? What about the Psalms? We're going to ask those questions next week. So let us go to God in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for a chance to engage your scriptures this morning. And we pray, God, uh, in, the word, in the words of James, that we would not um, simply be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers. Father, I pray that we would take heart this morning in the intricacy of scripture, in the way that it is interwoven together, God, that you would... Um, just knit into our hearts a sense of confidence in the validity and truth of the gospel, that we would take heart at the fact that Jesus has died and risen because we recognize that he has done that for our sins so that we can be forgiven and reconciled to him. And yet, God, help us, help us to not just be people who claim those things, help us to be people who truly live those things, who truly have experienced being born again, who have experienced the old man coming off and the new man of Christ coming on, Father. Change our hearts so that we might also go and declare this message and live this message in our world. We thank you. It's in your holy name we pray.